god dag, og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Det er en helt usædvanlig situation, vi har i verden, og det bliver vi nødt til også at afspejle i programmet her for Langsomme Samtaler. Jeg har flyttet lidt rundt på rækkefølgen af dem, jeg taler med. Så den fuldstændig fantastiske kenyanske klimaaktivist Elizabeth Warthuti, som åbnede COP26 i Glasgow, har jeg stadigvæk en aftale med, men jeg har valgt at udskyde samtalen nu. For i stedet i denne uge at tale med den kanadiske filosof, politiker, forhenværende rektor for det europæiske universitet i Budapest, Michael Ignatieff. Michael Ignatieff har gennem de sidste årtier været en af de stærkeste fortalere for det, han kalder for en liberal internationalisme. Han er en af dem, der har været med til at præge den vestlige opinion i årene efter murens fald og insisteret på, at man indimellem måtte bruge militærmagt, hvis man ville forsvare menneskers rettigheder mod deres magthaver, og at man ikke kunne frembringe fred, det ultimative gode i verden, hvis man ikke også indimellem var klar til interventioner. Michael Ignatieff var dybt skuffet over, at Vesten lod Bashar al-Assad myrde løs på sin egen befolkning. Han betragtede det som et svigt, at den amerikanske præsident havde sagt, at der var en rød linje, som Bashar al-Assad ikke måtte overtræde, og at han ikke håndhævede den røde linje. Michael Ignatieff er en af dem, der insisterende har fastholdt, at man bliver nødt til en gang imellem at bruge militær magt, hvis man vil opretholde freden, også i Vesten. Han skrev i december 2021 et enormt vigtigt essay, hvor han gjorde status over 30 års sikkerhedspolitik og 30 års kamp for en liberal verdensorden. Hans pointe var i essayet, som hedder The Collapse of Liberal Internationalism, at den verdensorden er faldet fra hinanden, at det, der var den liberale internationalisme, som han troede på, signaturprojekter, det var militære interventioner og nationbuilding, at det havde slået fejl i Afghanistan, Irak og Syrien, og det var fuldstændigt ødelæggende for den vestlige verdens legitimitet og for vores evne til at forsvare borgere i fremmede lande mod overgreb fra deres magthaver. Det er derfor, jeg i den her uge har lavet en aftale med Michael Ignatieff. Jeg kan næsten ikke komme på nogen. Jeg hellere vil tale med om alt det, der er sket i Europa, i verden og i særdeleshed på slagmarkerne i Ukraine. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you Michael Ignatieff who is with us from Vienna. Thank you so much for taking your time. Pleasure to be here. Michael Ignatieff har også lige udgivet en ny bog. Som på en eller anden måde handler om noget helt andet, men alligevel er det netop det vi skal tale om. Bogen hedder On Consolation. Om trøst, og den handler netop om hvordan man i mørke tider, som dem vi lever i nu, kan finde frem til fortrystning, og hvordan betingelsen for, at man kan trøste hinanden, også er, at der er håb. Det er der, vi starter samtalen mellem trøst og håb, og betingelserne for at tale om en bedre verden. Vi når til krigen efterfølgende. Now you've published a book, this on consolation, which is a very, very different book. It's such a timely book, I, I think. I was It's about consolation and I should and I should recommend it to everyone. It's really one of the best books about this topic that I ever read 
and there are some thoughts and reflections on death that I will keep with me for the rest of my life. I'm very impressed by Cicely Saunders, the hero. So it's such a it's such a wonderful book. It's very much about giving meaning to death, loss, and and suffering. Something that I think we're not very well equipped to in a in a liberal culture, and something that to me became very present during COVID. That because you had to slow down and 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 look at the world and think about the world, and we had time to contemplate the future of climate change. So I, I, I was struck by the seriousness of, of many of the reflections that, that, that we have. What was your background for writing the book? Well, it started because I wanted to understand why I'm a secular person. Um, I remain so moved and comforted by the great biblical sources of consolation, like the Psalms, and like uh, St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, those wonderful verses about love. And I then, after trying to answer that question, which is why religious language consoles even secular people, I then went on to look at some of the more secular sources of consolation. And I think the discovery I made is that, you know, the human tradition going back as far as we can imagine, has tried to offer consolation for loss, for death, for suffering. And consolation is about, as you said, Rune, finding meaning for experiences that overwhelm us. And the meaning we're looking for is for some way to go on. And so there's a connection between consolation and hope. And consolation could almost be defined as the struggle to find hope after defeat and loss and death. So our traditions are extremely rich here. And I've tried to just write some essays that tried to explain how some of these great works of consolation came about, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, Montaigne, and a number of others. And, um, but I also want to say very clearly to your viewers and listeners that consolation is, at the, is the most important form of solidarity between for one human being to another. We've all tried to console somebody who's lost their mom or their dad or their children. And we know how hard it is. We know that these are moments when words fail us. And so consolation is at the absolute outer edge of what one human being can do for another and what language can do for, for us. And so I do want to say so clearly that consolation is a struggle against the inconsolable. And there are many experiences for which we are properly inconsolable. There's a, we speak a lot about comforting one another. And I think we speak a lot about supporting one another. Those are, at least here in Denmark, those are terms frequently yes. used. But the consolation is not a very, it's not used very often here. And I was struck recently when I read an interview with the French writer Michel Houellebecq, who said that his entire work was about consolation because it was so rare. How do you distinguish between supporting, comforting, and then consoling people? Well, if I were to comfort you, Rune, I wouldn't have to say a word. I just <laughs> hand you a beer and we'd sit together and uh, and hopefully my company would, you know, relieve your distress or your disappointment. Um, supporting somebody, again, I wouldn't have to say very much. I would just 
say, you know, can I fill your fridge for you? Can I, you know, can I look after your cats while you go away? Can I um, take care of your kids while you, you know, while you're going through a tough time? But consolation is the process by which we seek to give meaning to some terrible experience and through that meaning overcome it and recover hope to go on. So it's it's about the creation of meaning in the most difficult moments of our lives. And, and it's often very difficult to give meaning. I mean, you, you know, if you lose a child, there may be somebody listening to this who's lost a child. I mean, what, you know, just these disasters, these catastrophes in life, sometimes there's no meaning to be given to it. And all we can do it is endure it and somehow find the way to go on. And there, the company of others is a comfort, but not necessarily a consolation. There's, there's a point, I think, late in the book, which I think is related to, you write about the death of your parents in, in, in the end of the book, which is that there's a conscious process of consolation. But you say there's also an unconscious process of consolation, which is that it takes a certain time and it's and sometimes you just have to endure something that doesn't give meaning. Could you tell us a little bit about this unconscious process of consolation? Well, I wish I knew because it's <laughs> unconscious. It's so hard to talk about. All I know in my own case is that when my parents died very soon after each other in difficult circumstances, 30 years ago, um, I was inconsolable. Um, I can recollect how I consciously sought to overcome this, but I think the most important things were the unconscious coming to terms somewhere inside myself so that after a couple of years, it just didn't hurt as much anymore. I could go on. I, I recovered my my love of life. Um, uh, and a lot of that is an unconscious process. So I'm very in favor of therapies which help us to get in touch with these unconscious processes and assist them. But I also think that one of the wisdoms of the tradition of consolation that I'm talking about is that they do not think of suffering, loss, failure, and death as illnesses. Hmm. They just think of them as things that happen, very tough things that happen to it that are part of life. And so this tradition thinks of grief and sorrow and suffering as just entirely natural processes by which we seek to overcome. And I, there is, a, I think, sometimes a danger when we medicalize despair and when we medicalize suffering as if they were illnesses for which there was a cure. I think there's something inadequate about that because there's some things that just are, are are part of living and sometimes and here i'm not against freud and therapy at all but you know the wisest thing freud ever said was often the best we can hope for is to convert hysterical misery into common unhappiness through therapy through reflection through and i'll take common unhappiness over hysterical misery any day it's a book about uh, about consolation, and you you find a lot of writers who dealt with it before. Not exclusively writers; there are musicians and and uh, Cicely Saunders, who, uh, who is an, a nurse in 
in, in the end as well. And there's something very interesting, I think, in your way of writing about these writers is that you write about their doctrines, say, for instance, Cicero, the Stoicism, and, and this ethic of you should man up and eat the pain and don't, don't feel it. But it seems to me that it's not the doctrines that really interest you. It's kind of the distance between how Cicero lived and what he was, what he was, I wouldn't say preaching because he wasn't a preacher, but he, but the distance between life and philosophy and life and, and, and doctrine. We have this man who was so famous for saying man up and his followers believed it. And then he lost his daughter. And that was a tragedy where he couldn't uh, man up. Is that a correct understanding of the book that this, this yeah. distance is so interesting to you? Yes, I think we are, we are comforted by people, not by doctrines. We're com comforted and consoled by the example that people leave and the example that people set for us. And even the doctrines, in this case, Cicero's doctrines of stoic manliness um, are created in a context Each one of the essays, and there are 18 of them in the book, tries to understand how a idea of consolation or a process of consolation occurred in a life and, and how someone had to deal with um, an overwhelming challenge. As you say, in, in Cicero's case, what I'm interested in is here's a man who created or articulated the doctrine of stoic, manly restraint in the face of suffering and and then lost his own daughter, and the doctrines fall apart. That's the thing I'm interested in, when the doctrines fall apart. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, the great Roman emperor, um, one of the few people in history who deserves the title of philosopher king, um, a master of Stoic philosophy, goes out to the frontier, um, somewhere near Vienna, where I'm talking to you, to fight the barbarians. And it's there that he writes the meditations. And I think when you understand that he's writing it in the middle of a brutal barbarian counterinsurgency at the end of his life, uh, you begin to realize that the meditations are a very dark document in which an old ill emperor at the end of his tether struggles to keep himself together. And I find that, Marcus Aurelius, much more interesting than the Marcus Aurelius who's reeling off various platitudes about how you have to, you know, endure and accept suffering. When you see it in the context of his life, you, you begin to admire him much more, just as later I talk about Michel de Montaigne. Well, it's very easy to like Michel de Montaigne. He's, <laughs> he's a wonderful man, but your admiration for him increases greatly when you understand first that he was in the middle of a plague when he wrote some of these great issues and they were killing people all around him. And secondly, he was in the middle of a civil war in which people were massacring each other not five miles from his castle. And all this gives a kind of drama uh, and intensity to their search for consolation and meaning that would otherwise be absent if you just read the books and didn't know the context. So I've tried to provide the context for each of these stories. There's also, I wouldn't say an agreement, but it's also a point for many of them. Famously, of course, for Michel de Montaigne, because he was kind of an anti-philosopher philosopher who was always, well, I met this guy and I experienced this. And, and uh, you, know, you know, there's always this guy sitting in the tower and remembering everything that he experienced down on the ground yeah. and generalizing. 
but but it seems always to be also to be an experience that there are limits to philosophy that even for these philosophers there are limits to philosophy yes yes i think it's very humbling and rather wonderful i'm very interested in philosophers who understand the limits of their philosophy the other example of that is david hume the great scottish philosopher in his 20s writes one of the greatest books of philosophy called the treatise of human nature and it nearly kills him it nearly drives him round the bend and he makes an important discovery which is that he can't think himself out of his anguish and anxiety the thing that makes a difference is putting the papers away putting the books down and going out and playing cards and having a drink with friends and going for a walk he discovers sociability he discovers that we are social creatures in desperate need of the company of other people and it's often that that is consoling comforting reassuring gives us back our sense of the meaning of life not abstract philosophical reflection which on the contrary can drive us to distraction and and desperation and despair i'm very interested in that i not to disparage philosophy which is a a noble discipline but i appreciate that what david hume paid to understand that uh he came close to a mental breakdown in fact spent three or four years in a state of acute depression and with enormous courage managed to write himself out of it and i'm i'm inspired by that and i hope readers of my book will will see hume through new eyes as a result oh i think that's definitely a quality of the book like i wasn't aware of the story of montaigne's story is quite famous i think because he also writes about experience but i didn't know many of the stories and and many of them like for instance karl marx i would think that you know i would know your reservations against the dogmatist marxism and and the communism but i think you open up a lot of thinkers by by going through through con- consolation what is it that you found so interesting about the, the i think it's the philosophy of the young karl marx isn't it yes it i the most attractive marx is is um, the marx who's under 30 just married loves jenny von westphalen his wife they've just had a baby they're in paris in the cauldron of revolutionary politics in the 1840s and he begins to dream um what it would be to have a just revolutionary society that achieves equality equality for women equality for working men and end to exploitation and to alienation all these great themes and i think a lot of this is an encounter by marx with his religious heritage and with the religious heritage of the west because the thing he feels enchains human beings most is their yearning for paradise beyond this life what he wants human beings to do to is to fight for justice in this life and create a world in this life in which people know justice and freedom and all this stuff so um a lot of his writing is a revolt against the consolations of the religious tradition but the thing that makes marx very unusual and very sympathetic to me although i hate 
communism, <laughs> hate official Marxism, hate what was done with this doctrine later by Lenin, Stalin, and everybody else. But the, the young Marx has the courage to say that religion is the heart of a heartless world. Well, you only say that if you understand how deep the yearnings go for consolation that religion tried to address and how deep the challenge it would be to create a world in which you don't need religious consolation because you're consoled in this life. And I think that in a nutshell is what Marx was trying to do. And that's what I try to recreate in this account I give of him. There's also a sense in which I think that consolation that Marx wanted to get rid of in the religious framework was part of inst some institutions and some rituals that belong to the old world. And that, and that, that we struggle to find rituals and that we struggle to invent something that is adequate. And then you come as a non-believer and you have this experience in, in the church in, in Utrecht and we don't really, it's kind of a door that we locked ourselves and we can just reopen it. Yes, I think it is a door we locked ourselves. <clears throat> I mean, I have had a quarrel with religion since I read David Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion when I was 18. I come from a religious background. My father was a Russian Orthodox believer because he went into exile as a child and the church was his home away from home where he could hear his mother tongue and console himself for the sorrows of being thrown out of his country. So I've always respected my father's faith and been very moved by it, but I, I just can't share it. The thing that I began to realize as I looked at these religious texts was that my disbelief didn't matter. I mean, so what if I have a problem with God? So what? You know, this is all above my possibility of understanding. All I've got is the words, and the words of the Psalms are among the deepest account of what it is to be lonely and frightened and in despair. And if you read them, you feel this sense of solidarity across time, the sense that somebody is listening, someone understands what you're going through. And that's why I think secular people should, as you, I thought your phrase was wonderful, we've locked a door that we can open. If you open that door, suddenly these religious texts, whether you believe in God or not, can offer enormous insight into human psychology and human character, but also can connect you to that key sense, which is necessary to overcome despair, which is, I am not alone. Someone has felt this before me. Someone understands this. And that's what I felt when I read the Psalms. It's what I feel when I read the Bible. It's what I feel when I read great religious texts. And I think we need to open the door that secularism is closed just because secular is purely secular traditions, great as they are, are don't have this wisdom. Some of them don't have this wisdom. So we need, you know, we need all, frankly, we need all the help we can get. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, when I'm when my I'm I'm a non-believer as well. My grandparents were very religious. People. So when my kids were young, I wanted them to, I don't want them to be secularist prejudiced. I don't want them to think that, you know, I, I really don't like non-believers resistance to religious people. I, I don't like it. So I, we read the Bible and they were, and they really loved the stories. But my son also said, well, 
that it really comforts me to think that people have been reading these stories for 2000 years, that everything that I, that will eventually happen to me in my life, it's already been told here and that I'm part of a community of, of readers. Indeed, absolutely. Your son is right. <laughs> <laughs> when you measure or when you write about the distance between the private sufferings of Cicero and the, and the philosophy of, of Cicero and the virtues that he celebrated, when you, when you were writing this book, did, did that also change your look upon what you wrote before or did you have another relation to your own thinking? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the book consoled me to write, <clears throat> write it, but it also changed my views of many things. I, I, I think um, <clears throat> I can't begin to describe what, I mean, I give you one example of where I <clears throat> think I learned something I'd never <clears throat> understood before, which is the last chapter is about a woman who wasn't a philosopher at all. She was a great nurse and a doctor called Cicely Saunders, who spent her life helping the dying to die and perfected the hospice, the modern hospice and, and the palliative care, which is now crucial to hospitals in your country and in my country. And so she's a great heroine to me because she saw something very clearly, which is consolation needs a place. It needs a place where consolation can occur. And the modern hospital is often the wrong place. It just, there's doctors running around and things are beeping and pinging. And, you know, it, it just, attention is not paid to the needs of the dying in that setting. And she wanted to create a place where attention was paid to their needs. And also time, so that even if you can't provide further treatment, you can still provide a place where someone who's facing death can be reconciled and accept what's going to happen and make peace with their life. And I think what I, that did change my view of death in a very fundamental way. Because I think I always thought of death simply as the end, you know, and I'm frightened of it like everybody else. And what Cicely Saunders taught me is that it's not the end at all. Uh, because you, you die with others, you die in the company of others. Your children will be there, your wife will be there. Uh, and what's very important is that you can, by the way, the manner in which you die, you can take away the fear of it for those you love. And that's a fantastically positive idea. I, look, I don't know whether I'm gonna be capable of it. I don't know whether I'll be compass mendus. I don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what cards will be dealt to us at the end. But if the right cards are dealt and I'm conscious and I, you know, and I have some time, I do want to die in such a way that people aren't frightened of it. And is that something we can do? We can do, so oddly, the dying can, can console the living, not to be afraid of death. And of all the things that I learned in writing the book, that may be the most important. Yeah, that was the thought that I was referring to in the beginning that I will keep with me that I never thought of that before that everyone is afraid of dying. It's, you know, dark point of all our, our lives. But if you can help everyone else when you go away and your kids can tell the story to their kids, well, he was per perfectly at ease with himself. He said it was time to leave. 
that yeah. you had a full life and you know this the opportunity that you at this ultimate moment could give pass something on to the next generations and the people around you i never thought of that before i thought it was such a beautiful insight yeah. from cicely saunders yeah. yeah i want to ask you about something else which is a little uh, which is of course about the situation that we're in at at the moment which also requires consolation and which also requires for some giving meaning to death and suffering this moment that we're in now for many here in denmark and i think that we've been in a very very protected part of history and we knew putin was was excessive we saw him kill his opposition we saw him take crimea and georgia you know we didn't have to live in a parenthesis in history but we did here in denmark and now we feel that that we're in totally i think people now feel that they're in a totally a new situation that you know the holiday from from history is 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 over how, how do you see the situation in this life well i think it's a powerful idea to think you're in a parenthesis <laughs> but it's an it's an illusion yes and it is a false consolation we're never in a parenthesis um and we're never outside history in some little danish paradise outside of time time flows through all our lives and i think every country was in a sort of set of false consolations about history which took two forms one of them was if we were a democracy we thought history was heading in the direction of more democracy we also thought if we're commercial societies like denmark that globalization would bring us together every one of those maersk containers was you know a bearer of peace in some weird way because it would bind us all together and i think these were illusions and they were the ways in which we told ourselves a narrative about history to console ourselves but the the consolations were false because as you say um a history doesn't stop b the resentments um from the historical past have surfaced again vladimir putin uh has simply surfaced the resentments that russians have about the end of the soviet empire and the sense that they were dumped uh on the shore uh and abandoned and ignored and uh dissed and condescended to um as the as the american hyperpower and europe's forged ahead these resentments were never dealt with they're not justified but they were there and i think the other thing is that we didn't we haven't noticed that he began this war not in 2022 but in 2007 he gave a speech at the munich security conference in 2007 that basically said i don't accept russia's place in the 21st century world and i'm going to change it and then in 2008 he you know prevented georgia from ever coming into nato uh and he divided the country then he went into eastern ukraine and took a chunk of ukraine and all of crimea and that was perfectly clear that he was going to do more and it was just a matter of time but we didn't act strongly enough in 2014 and and in 20 2008 
and we're now waking up to what we thought was completely unthinkable, which is a, a full-scale invasion whose purpose is to extinguish Ukrainian sovereignty, extinguish Ukrainian democracy, incorporate Ukraine into Russia once again, and um, install a puppet government that does what he wants. And he's willing to pay and inflict horrendous damage. And we're talking on this Tuesday night as a column, armored column approaches Kiev to besiege it and potentially pound it into submission. And the, these are horrifying, really horrifying realities. The most shocking things to happen at least since the siege of Sarajevo in the 1990s. But the only thing I would, would add, which I, th I think is decisive here, is that this is not just about a demonic personality like Putin. It reflects deep trends in the use of Russian power that go back to 1956. In 1956, Soviet tanks pounded the city of Budapest and crushed a popular uprising. In 1968 in Prague, Soviet tanks again suppressed a people's desire for freedom. In 1981, um, uh, they didn't send in the tanks, but they told the Polish regime to, to, to clamp down on any attempt to create an independent Poland. Now, what you learn from those three stories is important. They all failed ultimately, and it took 40 years in the Hungarian case, 20 years in the Polish case, and 10 years in the Czech case. These countries regained their freedom. And, and then one of the reasons that their freedom is now guaranteed is that they're members of NATO. We have given a guarantee, a solemn guarantee as Western nations, that if they're attacked, we will threaten the use of nuclear weapons. And that's why they're free. And that's why the Russians failed. Now, my view about Ukraine is that the Putin attempt to eliminate democracy in Ukraine will fail as the three previous examples failed. That is, Ukraine, as a result of this invasion, will never, ever accept to be incorporated into Russia, will never accept the extinction of its freedom, and will campaign for the restoration of its freedom, just as long as the Baltic states campaigned for the restoration of their freedom when it was extinguished by the Soviet army in 1945. So the problem is, it may take a long time, but it will happen. Uh, Putin and Russia will fail. What it teaches us, unfortunately, is that authoritarian regimes cannot tolerate freedom on their borders. And, and it's the freedom that is the strategic threat, not NATO, but the freedom. And we must stand by Ukraine, and that means we must arm them to the degree that we can do so safely with defensive weapons. We must give a home to the refugees who flee. Um, we must isolate the Russian regime, take it out of the international system altogether. Um, we're doing all that. 
What we cannot do is go to war directly with Russia over this because this will risk a nuclear uh, confrontation which will destroy the world. We didn't invade and intervene in, in Budapest. We didn't intervene in Prague. We didn't in, intervene in Warsaw. And we did for the same reason. We cannot risk uh, a nuclear exchange. But it doesn't mean we're abandoning these people. Uh, and we won't. Uh, but it's the most tragic, in many ways, the most tragic event in my lifetime and the most shocking. You wrote a very powerful essay in December 2021, and that was an afterthought to the Afghanistan war, I think, which called uh, the collapse of liberal internationalism. Uh, and, and you said the two signature projects of the liberal internationalism that I, I was born in 74, so I believed in it. You know, I, I, I would think I was in favor of the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, and, and Afghanistan. So I believed actually in all of these these wars and, and they failed miserably. Yeah. Now you see, I think, now you see that the West is uniting and, and, it, and then and the West is united internally in the countries, uh, which is a, a surprise to me at least. Yeah. And you see that, that even Germany and the US are absolutely aligned. And yeah. we are agreeing that the response must be sanctions. Uh, do you see a kind of new liberal internationalism emerging from it, an, an internationalism that is not based on military intervention where it's too dangerous, the, the stakes are too high, and that we're actually trying to find ourselves together again in a, in a, in a you know, with sanction and using the economic order? Do, do you see a new potential for this? Well, Putin has certainly achieved what nobody ever thought possible, which is to create a unity in the NATO alliance that had not existed before. And it, it's also clear he's produced a 180 degree turn in German foreign policy. I mean, it's a really hugely important development that uh, Germany will now rearm effectively to 2% of its uh, budget. Um, and that uh, they will start to wean themselves or separate their, reduce their dependence on Russian oil and gas, and that's a huge priority for Europe to park a lot of LNG platforms off the North Sea and start sourcing um, our carbon-based fuels from places other than Russia, A, and then B, get through this energy transition quickly so we decarbonize these fuels. All this suddenly becomes a national security priority. And this does add up to your question to a certain kind of liberal internationalism, which is, you know, uh, green, makes savvy use of the international economic system to, to put counter pressure on Russia. But I think it's also got to reinvest in hard power. I just think all of these countries in NATO are going to have to invest more money so that they can forward deploy to the frontiers so that if Putin is tempted, for example, and he may be tempted right now to attack Poland because Poland is transiting arms and supplies into Ukraine, he may decide I'm going to attack Poland to stop the resupply of the Ukrainian resistance. And if he does, he's got to know that he will meet NATO troops in the first instance 
And second, we'll meet a, a nuclear threat if he persists. So I think the, the one addition that I would make to your idea about a revived liberal internationalism is it's gonna be a liberal internationalism that reinvests in hard power, military capability, cyber capability, artillery. I mean, the, the, the full gamut of things we need in order to project power because these authoritarian regimes respect nothing else. They don't care about our democracy. They don't care about our prosperity. The only thing they pay attention to is what we're spending on defense and what we're prepared to, to deploy. And we have to do this prudently. I'm not looking for conflict with the Russians. I'm not a warmonger. I'm just saying we have to go there. My country, I'm a Canadian, my country, Canada, woefully underfunds its defense and has done so for 40 years. And it's just gonna to have to change its tune. And this means domestic sacrifices. The Danish people are not gonna to wanna to spend money on your, you have a very fine military but you're gonna to have to spend an awful lot more. There's just no alternative. And we're gonna to have to follow the lead of the Germans and there we are. I think that will happen here. I think there's a big question for Denmark, which is how much do we want to do it with Europe and how close do we want to be to America? Sure. I'm curious, what do you think? I mean, now we all agree on the sanctions because that's not diplomacy where we have to give up something that we don't want to give him. It's not war. And I agree with that as well, and I hope they will be efficient. But I also, when you look at the track record of sanctions, that countries tend to adapt. North Korea adapted, Iran adapted, and uh, Cuba adapted. And I worry that we put immense suffering on 100 million Russians, and they will still have the bomb, so, so, so that we will put immense suffering on them, and that in maybe in three or four months, you'll, you'll put suffering on the Southern Italy as well. You'll lose support from the global South due to rising in energy prices. So I'm a little worried about this instrument that we've unleashed here. How do you see it? Well, I think you've identified very uh, serious uh, problems. We use the phrase targeted sanctions as if we if were capable to confine it to the people who it's, who it's easy to dislike. Putin, his inner circle, and these oligarchs. But as you point out, uh, sanctions are rarely sufficiently targeted to avoid um, hitting some nice old Russian lady who's got all her savings in a bank account, and that's her retirement. And she doesn't approve of Mr. Putin, but she's getting clobbered all the same. That's just, I'm afraid, what happens. And I don't, I don't see a an easy way to avoid what is called collateral damage here, both the collateral damage to the Russian population, but also, as you point out, to a global South, which will really struggle with rising energy prices. But let's also be clear, the collateral damage will come home. There will be many Danish people who will find the inevitable rise in energy prices a really painful adjustment, and they will have a difficult time in it because the Danish government and system is social democratic, I'm sure there will do a lot to cushion the blow, but we're all going to get hit. Um, I live in Austria, and I'm sure it's going to be, you know, my gas bills are going to go up. And I think that, again, <clears throat> makes it ever more important for us to diversify energy sources and make this green transition as fast as we can. But let's not 
tell ourselves fairy stories. The energy transition is a matter of a decade. It's not a matter of six months. And so I think it's all going to be difficult. And I think there'll be resentment at the cost that we're having to pay because of this frightful invasion. But the cost has to be paid. My, my parents paid a horrendous price during the Second World War, but it was a price that turned out to be worth it. And this is this is a, a battle we, we absolutely have to win. We cannot allow uh, Putin to get away with, with this. Um, and we, we have to make the price punitive for Putin. It'll be punitive politically, that is, and in the hope that the Russian elites will uh, overthrow him, frankly. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see what else we can do that brings this to a successful conclusion, except hopefully peaceful regime change in Russia. But again, let's not have illusions. This is a regime that killed Boris Nemtsov within 100 yards of the Kremlin walls, and has got Alexei Navalny in Perm in, in, a, in, in prison. So those who rise up against the regime know that they'll pay a, a fearful, fearful price. But this is the, the lesson we're slowly learning here, which is painful and difficult. We can't remake the world in the democratic image. We have to live side by side with regimes that are not democratic, that don't approach or even get close to, say, Danish norms. But we're now discovering, unfortunately, that authoritarian regimes are very, very dangerous to their neighbors. And it's not just Russia. I mean, if you're in Taiwan tonight, one of the questions you're asking is whether if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, will Taiwan be far behind? At the moment, the, the Chinese are signaling, apparently, that they are disturbed by the casualties and the civilian losses from the Russian operation and are apparently um, signaling disquiet. Now, that would change everything if Xi Jinping rang up Vladimir Putin and said, you got to stop. That would change everything. But I'm not, I'm not optimistic. And I'm not optimistic because these regime types are so similar in their ultimate objectives and, and so indifferent to human costs that I, I think looking for Xi Jinping to solve our problem is uh, very unlikely. I think what could be hoped is that the vote in the UN General Assembly tomorrow, that you will see massive support from the Global South and that you will see yeah. unity that is not a conflict within the old world, West against East, but that there will be Eastern and Southern countries supporting us. Well, thank yeah. you, Michael Ignatiev, for writing everything you do. Thank you so much for your efforts and for being with us tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Det var så min samtale med Michael Ignatiev. I næste uge får I den lovede samtale med Elizabeth Wathuti, som fortæller om, hvordan klimakrisen opleves fra dem, som det går ud over, og som fortæller om, hvorfor det er en forudsætning for, at vi overhovedet kan gøre noget i verden, at vi åbner vores hjerter for hinandens historie. For som hun siger, klimakrisen er ikke bare en krise i naturen. Det er også en krise i vores følelsesliv. Jeg håber, vi hører ved.